Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As you know, we've been looking at family life in light of what the Scripture teaches. And we entitled this series a few weeks back, Let the Wind Blow. Certainly the violent winds of the assaults of our culture coming against the family are blowing, and yet God's people built on the truth, raising children in the truth, have confidence that his word will prevail. We, we can stand generationally. We can pass on the truth as God calls us to do it. This is, of course, what Israel failed to do so often, and we read of it as we looked many weeks ago at Psalm 78, where they failed to pass on the truth to the next generation. We want to be thoughtful, careful, family life that is bound to the truth, saturated in the truth, seeking God's design and only his design. And so we've been looking at these principles. I told you in the beginning of the series that when my wife and I were first saved and had two little ones and we, we panicked, really, what do we do? How do we do this? And we really didn't have um, a, a number of mentors that we could turn to in those initial couple of years. We found the heart of one set of parents that were further down the road than us, and we really had a wonderful relationship with them. We respected what they were doing, and so we learned a lot from them. And after that, it was really a matter of taking the texts and passages that they had pointed us to in Scripture and studying them and beginning to think through the implications and putting them into practice in our home life, and it, it caused us to develop some early principles, which I've been covering with you in these morning sessions. Principle number one was that the family belongs to God. We have looked at that now extensively in this series, of course, as well as critical thinking on the family and other studies that we've done on the family. The family belongs to God. The, the culture wants to redefine it because it's defiant against God. The culture around us loves to exalt man and man's ideals and man's self-worship. And so injected into family life is the destruction of all of God's design. God's design is for wholesome communities, families that follow hard after him, that understand his design for every relationship within the family and its contribution to the culture and community. The defiant, rebellious culture around us who want to eliminate God are coming against every precious principle of God's design for the family. And so principle number one that gripped the heart of my wife and I was that we were not going to redefine it. We were not going to let the cultural ideas leak in. The family's designed by God as we have seen in this study and if you've not been with us in the study, you can go back to the uh, session a few weeks ago and it will take you through the passages of Scripture where God has defined what the family is. My wife and I determined early on that whatever our own ideas, we were going to try to subject them to God's Word and raise our children and have family life as He designs. The second principle I told you that became precious to us was that we wanted to teach our children 
to love the church of Jesus Christ, to love and serve the church of Jesus Christ. Clearly, we wanted to teach them the commands of God, the first two of which being the preeminent ones, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then flowing out of that, if you love the Lord your God, you're going to love his people. And of course, we taught them to love Christ and we taught them the gospel. And so it would seem strange that we would be somehow separate from the church, from God's people. And evangelicalism has had scattered notions that somehow the family is independent of God's people, doing its own thing, going where it wants to go, and the church has no voice in the family's life. And yet, nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture is very, very clear that we are to be with God's people, not forsake the assembling of ourselves. And as young parents, my wife and I just told our children, we're we're going to be with God's people whenever we can be with them because we're desperate. The day is drawing near. We must be stirred up to love and good deeds. And we camped on that principle a bit because I wanted to say how dangerous it is to be away from a body of Christ that reinforces family principles from God's word. You don't want to be in a church that attacks it. It's hard enough interacting together as families with all the different ways we apply principles, it, was be, it would be dangerous if we took our kids away from a pulpit that is sound and preaching the doctrines of scripture and nourishing you on the words of the faith. It's dangerous and destructive to listen to the opinions of young people or culture and take your family away from that. My wife and I desperately needed older mentors and families and a pulpit that reinforced that. And we felt very secure in a church that did that. And so we didn't want to teach our children by some poor example that ministry is a lifeless routine. It's an option among other options. We, we didn't want them ignorant of the doctrine of the church that is the pillar and support of the truth, as Paul told Timothy. We didn't want them thinking they could defy the delegated authority of church leaders as Hebrews 13, 17 calls us to obey them. We didn't want them disconnected from serving the body, even if they were young and not yet sure where their spiritual moorings were. We filled their life up with church life. The third principle we looked at was to permeate the home with the talk of Scripture, right? The Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 to 6, the Shema speaking about how you speak of the commands of God at every aspect of life, going to bed, getting up in the morning all through the day. And then Proverbs 6, instruction and reproofs for discipline are a way of life. We wanted to teach our children that in the informal life that we live at home, we're always going to approach everything that comes with principles from God's word. His perspective, what he says, that is all that matters to us at home. We wanted to fill our home with informal discussion of it. All the other stuff's easy. The fun and the enjoyment and the leisure and the entertainment and the interaction and family relationships and all of those great things. That's normal human life. It takes no work at all. 
But because we're born corrupt and children of wrath by nature, our flesh is delinquent and against God and foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so we knew we were going to have to bring the law of God to bear upon their tiny hearts and their minds all the time. And it would be for us essential as parents to fill our minds up with the principles of Scripture so that the Spirit of God raises implications from that and we begin to obey, subduing our flesh under Scripture that we gain discernment and wisdom to teach children how to apply the Scripture rightly. That, that was the burden of our hearts as young parents. Now, I wanted to come next to this next... Uh, actually, number four was the steadfast discipline of the children, and we looked extensively at Ephesians 6, verse 4, raised them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We put the special emphasis where Paul puts it on fathers. We come now to that fifth very, very important principle, and this would not be a surprise to you, rising here from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that we are working together with Christ, and so Paul urges the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. That became super crucial to us that there was a way in which you could receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, you're not applying it. You're not believing it. You're not coming under it. And then later on in this text, beginning in verse 14, he's telling the Corinthians, you're a worldly group of people. You were saved out of the Corinthian culture, so they knew what sin was at its sophisticated levels. Having now been redeemed out of it, I want you to come out of it. So principle number five that was so precious to my wife and I is this, to remove all worldly entanglements and distractions. To remove all worldly entanglements and distractions. Notice verse 14 I don't want you to be bound together with unbelievers, Paul says. And he's talking there about being involved in a, an enterprise, a spiritual enterprise with unbelievers. That is to say, you can't partner with their ethics. You can't partner with their home life. You can't partner with the way that they would make decisions. You might know them. You're going to witness to them. You're going to shepherd them. But you have to be careful because you don't even want the garment polluted by the flesh, as the New Testament warns. So while you're witnessing, while you're interacting with unbelievers in the world, because you can't come out of the world unless you go to heaven, so you're in it, but while you're in it, you're not to enjoy or engage in spiritual enterprises, moral enterprises with them as though you have the same ethics, the same ideals, the same way of making decisions. Practically speaking, you might not see much of a difference. I remember a Mormon family in our neighborhood, a little cul-de-sac we lived in, and our kids would go out there and try to, you know, engage with their friends from that family, the kids from that family, and that family had moral ideals from their religious background. But it was very clear from early on, and I warned the kids, the ideology, the doctrines are opposed. Their doctrine is false. They don't acknowledge the God of Scripture as God. They don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as the living and true God in human flesh. They don't acknowledge these things. So somewhere in all the interaction, you're going to hear things. 
You're going to hear things from their false religion, and we're going to correct that with truth. So on the outside, you may not always see a moral difference, but Paul says very clearly here, you're not to enterprise spiritual things. You're not to engage in spiritual endeavors, moral endeavors, ethical endeavors, as though you are bound together with an unbeliever. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? You know what happens sometimes when we meet nice people, moral families, conservative families? This is a tactic that Satan uses when we engage the lost world for the sake of a witness and living our life in and among the people of our culture. Satan's tactic is to soften the line between what Paul calls righteousness and lawlessness, to blur it, to blur the line. But he says there's no partnership. Why? Because one is righteousness and the other is the opposite, lawlessness. One is light and the other is darkness. Christians aren't perfect, but the root of the tree is true fruit. It's a true root. And so we have light, the light of Christ inside. An unbeliever may seem moral and it may look the same, but the root is bad. The root is darkness. And that's what Paul is saying. There's no fellowship. There's no sharing of spiritual resources between darkness and light. Notice verse 15, what harmony has Christ with Satan? Belial is just a, one of those terms that is for the enemy, the, uh, the adversary. What harmony does Christ have with Satan? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with false gods? For we are the temple of the living God. And so just as God said, I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from the midst of that which is darkness and come away from that and be, he says, separate. Don't touch what's unclean. He's not talking about interacting with the culture. He's talking about engaging in a moral enterprise as if you're the same. Early on in in our family life, this became crucial to us because we wanted to know how it is that long-held convictions can erode over time. As the culture comes against us, as moral unbelievers um, go to the same places, have some of the same conservative ideals, uh, we might celebrate the reality of a conservative aspect of our culture, but not as though we walk in the same ethic, not as though we have harmony or something in common or fellowship or partnership. I've watched over the years countless families become fearful of the world's opinions coming against theirs. And so families don't like the trouble, and so they begin to flirt with earthly values and with the world's ethics in ways that they at first never would have dreamed of. Over time, the clarity of God's word is lost in, in this fog 
of compromise. And over time, the compromises are small and you don't see them. And so over time, the promises of God are lost in a sea of a lack of faith. You lose your moral, your moral fortitude. Look, Satan wants our kids and he wants their minds and he has the world at his disposal with all of its resources. You need not fear his wicked plots, but 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says, resist him firm in the faith, in the truth. Resist him firm in it. Believe the truth against the lies. But you know, if you get close to the culture around you and you begin to fear man or you imagine that there is some harmony between light and darkness, there is some legitimate partnership in your ethics, uh, you have now opened the door to even uh, inroads with greater compromise and eventually you'll, you'll become blind. The blinders will start to occur. The spiritual myopia will happen and you won't be able to see what God says anymore. Pretty soon you might think that the top of the spiritual food chain is here. The Bible puts it here, but you're over here in a crowd of families professing Christ, but you think this is the top of the food chain, that we make our decisions here. I've told you before that when it comes to family life, dad and mom have to make hard decisions because of all the immature ways that children think these things through. They don't have the grounding yet. Sometimes have never even been tested in their faith outside of the home with respect to their profession for loving Christ. And so dads and moms have to teach children how to make wise decisions, but it must be grounded in this reality that we're not the same. And we won't be the same until they're rescued by the mercy of Christ. You remember we were talking some months ago in a critical thinking series about the culture's uh, dumbing down of propriety. And it's because the culture defies God's, com God's command to be righteous and man's having fallen short of the glory of God. The culture defies those ideas. The standard of good, the standard of moral righteousness is not where the Bible says it is. That's just a bunch of religious crutched people who were bound in some oppressive uh, restraint of their passions. And sin isn't really what the Bible calls it. Sin, what is sin? Who defines sin? We are the ones who can define our own moral life and our own morals. That is the culture's idea. And so what you see in our culture here is the more they resist God and defy him, the more the true shame of sin goes away. There is a hardened heart, a not a recognition of shame, a suppression, a suppression of the clarity of truth about God's holiness and the standard, and a complete embracing of all that will destroy. They don't care about the shame of it. That's why you see all the clothes come off. 
That's why you see all the moral degradation happening. That's why you see a defiance in all realms of personal holiness or the realm of family life or the realm of parenting or sexuality or all of it. That's why you see that, because there's an absence of what God says about sin and therefore shame. In family life, you teach your children that the reason we live the way we live is because we're taking these principles of the human heart, that man has fallen short of the glory of God, and we accept that God says there's an evil disposition in our hearts, and apart from grace, we will always pervert the truth. We don't deny the inherent shame and guilt that is unavoidably compounded by our self-exposure, by our defiance of God. We teach our children that there is inherent shame and guilt, and it's covered only by Christ. God is the cure for restoring human dignity. If we defy him, we will destroy human dignity. Divine grace provides the covering, not man's attempts at self-help, at self-betterment, at self-actualization. There's a danger in flirting with such things because it stirs up cravings that lead to destruction. We teach our children that. We teach our children not to deny the sin that tempts us or the sin that tempts others, which denigrates and weakens and divides. Even in family life, this has to be the constant foundation of what you teach your children. Otherwise, the stuff that's coming in from the culture is giving them a moral perspective that is antithetical to God's perspective and denies that man has suppressed truth in wickedness. So when your children come home and want to flirt with a different standard, when they want to dumb down the standard, dad and mom are taking their stand. There is no harmony between us and the culture, morally. But what happens is parents weaken in their own resolve. Once the parental line of truth between truth and error gets blurred in the heart of a parent, the children will be in devastating peril. Parents cannot compromise. And so you're going to teach your children that defying God is, is uh, manifested in these ways and that the culture is a manifestation of it. It's not something to flirt with. It's not something to toy with. This is the culture's manifestation of a defiance against God, right? Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They will not acknowledge him as God. And so they're given over to these degradations. You teach your children this. You teach your children about the flesh that foolishness is bound up inside of them. It's not just that Satan's world and the evil culture is going to assault them, but the reason it's so tempting is because inside of them is this craving to have what they want, and that must be brought by faith humbly under God's truth. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Again, very familiar words, but no... no um, Room, no wiggle room here. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. That's interesting. It's an interesting way to say it. Don't love its 
heart and soul and ethics and ideology. Don't, don't love that the world is independent, captain of its own soul, doing what it wants to do, living for itself. And don't love the things that are a reflection of that. Talk about a comprehensive statement. Do not love its viewpoints that go against truth and do not love anything that comes from it. I'm talking institutions, education, degree programs, professors, any kind of defense of the existence of no God, right? The atheists and the agnostics. No, you're not to accept any scientific explanation above the scriptures, testimony about the origin of all things. We're not to accept any of those philosophies. Do not love anything that is not from God. How many places in your thinking, how many things have been said in your home, mom and dad, how many discussions and problem solving has resulted in some viewpoint and some conclusion that is not thoroughly biblical. What do you live by? What ideology do you live by? This passage says don't love the world, the world's viewpoints, the world's perspective, its ethics, its morals, its foundation. Don't love it. How much of your home traverses through a mix of Bible and some of what the world says? If you don't know, it, could it be that you've already dumbed your discernment down because you're not precise with the truth? You don't pursue it far enough. That's what I think happens. I know the temptations my wife and I have had all through the years raising our kids was to relax and settle down. And we were even told that by Christians. Hey, ease up. Chill out. We were told that. And we got intimidated by it. Really? Are we, are we just nuts? Are we insane? Are we, are we radical? I mean, we don't want to be obstinate to people. We want to be loving to people and humble to people. But... But if this is what the word says, and this is how it must apply in family life, and that's what the world is saying, and they sound an awful lot like some snuggling up to the world, we are bound here. That's what we had to do. And sometimes we had to look back at a decision and say, Lord, please forgive us. We weren't tight enough there. We weren't precise enough there. We weren't careful enough there. Notice, nor the things in the world. Satan not only has an ideology that he has captivated the fallen humanity in, but he also has subtle ways that those things produce and manifest ways and means and principles. He has his own false Bible. He has his own false truth and when he secretly introduces the doctrines of demons, these are the things in the world that tempt us. And John says, I don't want you to love the foundation and I don't want you to love its outworkings, any of it. Then he says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, wow, the love of the Father 
is not in him. So now he's talking about religious professions. Somebody who professes to know the Father, to know the God of the Bible, or to know Christ, but loves the world, and so it is proof that they're not saved. I mean, John is a black and white apostle. I don't know where someone's heart is, but I can say that if you love the world, this is what the Bible says. You're not a believer. The love of the Father is not in you. He's not talking about failing or falling into sin as Christians. We do that. He's talking about having the, the comfortable custom of your heart be a lover of the things that are antithetical to God. You claim to know Christ, but the custom of, of the heart of your life is to actually love the things of the world. You're not miserable when you fall into them. You're not broken when you fall into them. You actually would rather be in them because you, you have this customary, deep-down affection for, for what the world gives and offers and what Satan trumps up for lies. He says, the love of the Father is not in you. In fact, all that is in the world, and look at the categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That, that's every, everything about the world and its ethics and its ideologies and its outworkings put into those three categories. Feeding the things of the flesh, feeding the things that entice us with our eye gate, and ultimately boasting about our own selves rather than giving glory to God. These are not from the Father, he says. These are from the world. And the world, listen to this, is passing away and its cravings. So what does he contrast it with? Doing the will of God. That's the one that lives forever. So in family life, you, you want to take the will of God to your children. This is the will of God for your life. This is what God's word says. Everything else is in these packaged, very concise, precise categories. So we tried to pour into our kids. What is that? Is that lust of the flesh? Then that's, that's against God. You, you have to go back to the will of God. What does God's will say about that? Is that the lust of the eyes? Then we need to go back to what God says our eyes, especially our spiritual eye of faith, is fixed on. We fix our eyes on Christ, not on the things that will entice the weakness in us. Is that the boastful pride of life? I mean, you talk about the legitimization of pride in our culture, and Christians are eaten up with it. We've let it in. We promote ourselves, brand ourselves. We step on other people to gain advantage, and we legitimize it. Well, this is just how we have to live. How did that happen? Little compromises. We weren't precise. We didn't call it the boastful pride of life. We called it self-confidence. We called it self-esteem. Which, by the way, beloved, do you realize how that swept in in the 70s and 80s? The doctrine of self-esteem, and yet what does Ephesians 5 say? No man actually ever hates his own flesh. We were teaching children in families to go against God's word. And rather than deny self, take up your cross and put all your love on Christ, we told them, you need self-confidence. You need to love yourself at the expense of loving others in sacrifice and service. 
We were feeding Christian families garbage, error, in the name of what was wonderful. And then boasting, oh, parents pump it into their kids, even in the church. Yeah, I want my kid to be confident. I want my kid to be successful. I want my kid to shine. I want my kid to have this and have that. Look, desiring great opportunities for your children and the wonderful grace of God, that's a natural desire. That's not a sinful desire, it's natural. We turn it into an idolatry and the boastful pride of life goes unnoticed, unconfessed, unrepented of. It's a mistake. Bible says that first on the list of the seven abominations which God hates, Proverbs 16 and 17 says, is haughty eyes. What's happening in your family life, beloved? Are you you, uh, allowing the cravings of the flesh to go unconfessed? You're not miserable in them? Are you allowing the cravings of the what you see in the world and how it entices and tempts you to believe it will satisfy? (laughs) Are you pumping that into your home? Yeah, we need that. We have to have this. Enticements of the flesh. Yeah, a little bit of compromise here. No big deal. Yeah, you know, you're not going the full way, but a little bit here. Parents, you must not do this. The Bible couldn't be more precise. And then what about the boasting of the pride of life? It's in us and it's in our children. What are you teaching them about this? Are you eliminating and removing all worldly distractions and entanglements? Look at Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment. This is is the dinner table principle right here. This is what you teach your children around the dinner table. This is what you teach them as... Family members upholding one another, encouraging one another. This is what you teach them. Since we have, verse 1 of chapter 12, so great a cloud of redeemed witnesses surrounding us, let us lay off every kind of excess baggage and the sin which so easily entangles. I mean, there's dinner time conversation. How were you tempted today? Uh, How easily were you entangled today? We had conversations at the end of the day in our family. I would sometimes send little notes with my kids off in their lunch. You know, here's a principle. Here's a verse. I want you to apply this today because I know you've had these friends who are uh, a certain way. And I know you've had trouble dealing with this attitude in class. And I know you you don't like this teacher. And you came home and complained about that homework. And you wanted to just play rather than do what discipline requires. So here's a verse. Apply it today. And when you come home at dinner, I'm going to ask you about it. How did it go? And our conversation often led to Hebrews 12.1. This is the encumbrance. This is the baggage that hangs on us. How'd you tighten it up today? How did you throw off the easy entanglements of sin? Or did you give yourself to it? And that led to great discussions and the more need for truth and helps them see that, man, it's true what this verse says. These things are excess baggage and they easily entangle us. We are, we are easy 
so often dragged into error. And then he says, and let us run. So we would say to the kids, you're in a race. You're in a race for the truth and for your soul. You're in a race for the spiritual victory. So you got to you got to think about this from a spiritual standpoint. I don't know where you're at spiritually yet. I know you profess Christ, but your faith is going to be tested. But know this, you, you don't casually walk through your day. You're in a race. So I want you to think about what Jesus says. Run it with endurance because it is set before you and your eye is where? Your eye is on Jesus. That's where your eye is. And so then, how do we look at family life? Anything that would distract us from the task of every day laying off excess baggage, getting rid of the sin which easily entangles, seeking forgiveness for our failures, coming back to the Lord because we're in a race, never taking off the running shoes, always thinking about long-standing endurance in Christ. It is a race set before every believer, and the eyes are fixed on Christ. Like Proverbs chapter 1 says, you don't look to the left and you don't look to the right. Get your mind down the lane. My daughter used to swim and I, I grew up a swimmer. And so we'd, we would, I would go over there as she was getting ready for a race, all nervous. I'm like, don't look at those other racers. Don't look at those other lanes. You have a lane. Look at the other end there. You're going to go down there. You're going to turn around and you come back here like lightning. You're in this lane. Fix your eyes there. Don't look at the water. Don't look at the other people. Just your lane. That became a great analogy from Hebrews 12 here. Run with the strength of the Lord to endure, fixing your eyes on the target. Well, that would mean then my home can't be hypocritical. I can't say to my kids, lay aside the excess baggage while I'm bringing excess baggage into the home. You say, how do we do that? Listen, guard your imagination as a family. I remember when our kids were little, we'd walk through the grocery aisle, turnstile, you know, you're about to pay for your groceries. Man, I couldn't say, you know, put your head down, cover your eyes, there's all this garbage up there on these, you know, magazines and publications. I couldn't say that, so I would, because they're, they're, gonna, they're going to have eyes looking around. I don't want them bumping into things. Uh, why are your kids bumping into things? Well, because I don't let them look at these magazines. So I told my children, turn your eyes away, protect your imagination, protect your mind. We filtered media in our home. We had a family standard. No lack of covering of human beings that erodes dignity and a sense of proper shame. None. I've told you before with particularly rules of modesty. We might apply those slightly different, but you, you have to teach your children that human dignity is to be protected and a proper sense of shame biblically is to be guarded. I mean, we want to throw off shame. Oh, shame's a bad thing. Biblical shame is not a bad thing. Biblical shame acknowledges sin, acknowledges desperate protection needs, acknowledges that God is the covering for our sin. We don't get the right to throw off those things that are our own guilt. God covers it. When it came to entertainment, we didn't, we didn't want the kind of entertainment that uh, 
pushed against biblical standards without some judgment involved. So in other words, people always say, oh, we don't let our kids see any violence. Are you kidding? There's violence in the Bible. The point is it's not gratuitous. It's not meaningless. It is clear and it has a purpose. If evil is treated as God calls it, and if righteousness is upheld, if the courts of law punish evil and reward good, that's a good thing. And of course, little minds don't need to see all the ways that, that media publishes the graphic nature of human death and human violence because frankly, we don't need to be desensitized to the sanctity of human life. You want to know why it's not good for kids to play all these violent video games? It's gratuitous. Violence is glorified. Vengeance is glorified. Righteousness is rarely upheld. Justice isn't upheld. Even if it's an army version of some media thing and it's a just war, have you ever explained that to kids? Or are they just fascinated with the graphic way that human life is taken? That's in our hearts. And we're supposed to go away from those things. So we just had that standard. We're not going to glorify meaningless killing and feed the boastful pride of life. And no out-of-context profanities and things like that. I mean, Ephesians 5 doesn't give us a list of what those words are because it doesn't need to. It just says whatever is against, which is propriety, and whatever's vulgar. I mean, look, you... You can talk to mentors about that. You can live in the culture you live in and find little differences here and there. But pretty much everybody knows there's some vulgar things and coarse humor and trashy things that don't uphold human dignity and that treat sexuality in filthy ways. And all of that was gone. There's no allowing for any of that. And we didn't like it and we didn't bring it into our children. Why? Because I keep telling them, throw off the excess baggage, but I'd be bringing it in. Throw off the sin which so easily entangles, but I'm allowing our home to be entangled in it. Dads, you have to set the tone on these things. Don't let other families dictate what you do in your family. Nor should you judge other people's preferences. They stand or fall before the Lord. But if you see a clear violation or a danger, you get together with other friends and you say, hey, what do you do? How do you decide that? What's the principle you're operating from? Let's strengthen one another in these things so we can strengthen our kids in these things. We won't agree on every application, but would we agree on the principles? Would we pray over the principles and how we're applying them? Will we seek to know what we're doing in our family to make sure it's thoughtful as this passage teaches? This is what we're called to do, beloved. This is our responsibility. Well, our time is our time is gone, so we're going to have to pick this up again. Now tonight, because we're three or four weeks into this kind of discussion, tonight Brian Arnold's going to develop some questions and ask them tonight. I'm going to just do sort of a, a practical outworking answer to the questions that I know are on your mind because many of you have asked them. So tonight we're going to come and just have a good old-fashioned discussion, reasoning through the scriptures about these things as we have learned them. And then when we come back, we'll have a couple more uh, 
Sunday mornings on two more principles that I believe will be important to finish off this series. But we want to be a church that helps one another with these things. And that means that we're going to give you the truth. We're going to help each other apply the truth, think through the truth. We're going to be gracious to one another in the differences for our preferences. And at the same time, we're, we're going to be bold about what the scriptures say. And if we see uh, each other needing strengthening and reinforcements, we're going to come alongside one another and we're going to help. We won't have the prerogative for dictating where our children end up. We don't know that. God must save our children. We trust the sovereign work that he has in his own prerogative for saving. He's the one that grants repentance and faith. He's the one that saves by his grace alone. But he promises to use his truth through the lives and influence of his people. And we want the next generation to, to understand that we as parents care about family life at this level. We care about it. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we have felt at times like we're touching the surface and yet so much your spirit can do and is doing with these truths. Thank you for the clarity of your word that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. We're not to entertain the ideologies of the world nor are we to love the world, nor the things in the world. But in our family life, because these relationships in family are interdependent, we need each other. We need the truth put at the center of it. Or to help our dads and our moms to think carefully about this. And where they find leaks, plug them with truth. Seek forgiveness for, for timidness and fear of man or compromises, restore the strength of the Spirit's work in us, help us to see clearly. May we come to the Word of God and, and find in it these wonderful truths and principles so precise, so clear, and then seek you by faith and prayer as to how to apply them in the lives of our children. And Lord, we pray for our young people, our, our little babies, brand new, our, our teens that are coming into adulthood and every age in between. And We pray for family life, that you'd help us to strengthen it, that you keep us from the evil one, and may we fortify with the truth against all that is not only going to rise up within us in our flesh, but all that will come against your truth from the culture and the evil one. Strengthen our dads and our moms, our granddads and grandmoms. Strengthen our young people as they head into the season of family life. And we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your power in these things. We know we're going to be on the outside, but help us to be willing to bear the reproach, to let the truth prevail in our lives and submit to your truth no matter the reproach. May we be willing to bear your reproach as you have borne ours on the cross. 
Lord, we thank you for your kindness and mercy to us, even in our weakness and failure, how you so use it in our lives to lift us up. And so help us to go straight forward with genuineness and integrity and honesty and and the pursuit of truth in these ways, we pray for your glory's sake in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.